Welcome to Liberty Starship, where we go beyond the typical terrestrial talk. I am Eric Alexander, along with Peter Main. Together, we are your crew and invite you to join us on the journey to discuss politics and current events. Pete, we have a special guest tonight. Would you like to introduce him to everyone? Yes, uh, I'm here. We're here with uh, Jacob Pritchett, and he's a longtime Arizona resident and a supporter of Justin Amash. Now, we've talked about Justin on previous podcasts. We're sort of on the fence here. You you have the two major party candidates. Justin is jumping in, formerly a Republican, now a, a Libertarian. And we want to sort of explore what the rationale is for Justin Amash's campaign. Can he win? And, and how this affects the race and how it affects America. So, Jake, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Pete and Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my name's Jacob Pritchett. I've lived in Arizona since 2012. I'm from Washington State originally. I guess a little bit about me. I came to Arizona basically to go to Arizona State University. Right when I got here, I got involved in an organization called Young Americans for Liberty, which is kind of campus activism organization, conservative and libertarian youth organization in the U.S. Uh, really came out of the Ron Paul movement. When I was probably about 16 uh, at high school, I was watching Ron Paul videos about YouTube and reading about libertarian, you know, ideology and like ideas and everything, and really was struck by a lot of the things that Dr. Paul was saying, especially in his speeches on the, on the, on the floor in the House of Representatives. Uh, really came to embrace the ideas of freedom, and I, I sort of resolved when I started college to sort of try to get involved, you know, trying to, you know, win hearts and minds for the ideas of freedom. And that's what I kind of try to do uh, with Young Americans for Liberty. Uh, while I was there, got involved in the Republican Party on a local level uh, a little bit, helped out some candidates, still trying to promote these ideas of, you know, freedom, non-aggression, not initiating force against people. Some people would call it fiscally conservative and socially liberal, if you want to like explain it to people in a way that uh, is easy for them to understand, but it's basically don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And that's kind of what I sort of promoted. I was also involved in an organization in starting actually an organization called Students for Self-Defense, which advocated for people's right to defend themselves on campus, be that with, you know, whatever kind of weapon that they wanted, like a pepper spray, stun gun, even a firearm, but also teaching them how to defend themselves. And politics wise, over time, I got a little disillusioned with the Republican Party, especially after it went in this populist, you know, direction. It seemed like people weren't really willing to like listen to reason. They were kind of they they took some really kind of sharp turns in I think a misguided attempt to to win. Maybe maybe own some libs. You know, I think that stuff's all well and good, but I think they kind of became the enemy of their own purpose. But that's that's mostly my story. Recently, I uh, joined the uh, Libertarian Party for the first time ever. And and so that's just a matter of, if I understand that correctly, you just pay a fee typically. I, I've read it was like usually less than $50 to become a member of both your state and national Libertarian Party. Yeah. So I, I joined the Libertarian Party online, paid some uh, member membership fees. I might look into some other stuff later. I kind of did like a really basic level thing. That's something I definitely encourage doing uh, if you if you do decide that you'd like to support the Libertarian Party and the stuff that they're doing, you know, go and pay their fee. It'll help them pay for their you know, their campaigns. And I, when I was, when I was a teenager, I got some nice pamphlets from the Libertarian Party that explained, you know, a lot of their positions on things like corporate welfare and stuff like that and everything that somebody has to pay for that stuff. So that, that could help. Uh, also registered Libertarian in the state of Arizona. That's, that's good for, you know, uh, keeping their, their stature up in your local. So, you know, register in your local state, if your state has partisan registration, 
that that can be kind of a double-edged sword because right now the libertarians in Arizona are considered a major party, so it's actually harder for them to get on the ballot, if I understand correctly. Um, sort of. So the situation in Arizona, and granted, I'm I'm new to the Libertarian Party, so mm-hmm. you know, don't be mad if I like you know butcher That's things. Okay. But basically, there was a there was a court decision that the Libertarians kind of advocated for to keep other people from being involved in their uh, their primaries. They wanted to close it off. There were apparently some bad actors, you know, some people, you know, kind of trying to use them for purposes that weren't that weren't good. But consequently, the signature requirements for libertarian candidates are actually more stringent in a sense. So it's like the same percentage of like party members you need and everything. But so if you're a Republican or a Democrat and you want to run for office, you need to get signatures to qualify. You can get signatures from Republicans or from independents if you're running to be a Republican. If you're a Democrat, you can go Democrats or independents. Much easier to find people to get nominated. For libertarians, this, the raw signature requirement is lower, but you can only reach out to libertarians, like people who are registered libertarian. And there aren't as many of them. It's hard to find. It's hard to get a walk list out of that, you know? So, like, if you, like, went to a mall and went to, like, you know, try to, like, ask people if they were libertarian to get them to sign your nominating petition or something, like, good, good luck with that. That's going to be difficult. Right. So there are, I, I think you're right. There are some hurdles there. Yeah, I remember so, when they changed that. I remember when that happened, and it seemed like the, the all of a sudden the liber- there were like no libertarians on the ballot anymore. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I actually I, I confirmed recently. I talked to somebody who was uh, involved in the in the state party, and they said, "Yeah, unfortunately, don't have anybody on the ballot this year." That's something actually. I think I'd like to help change. I think we could talk a little bit more. What's your question? And, it, and it's a huge contrast to the Green Party because the Green Party it's very easy to get on the ballot. In fact. We actually hosted someone at one of our um, events years and years ago, the Arizona Liberty Caucus, the, the organization mm-hmm. that Pete and I met in. We actually hosted a green candidate one time, and she really wasn't that green, but it was just mm-hmm. easy for her to get on the ballot as a green. Yeah, and I understand so, that there are some members of the Green Party that are um, that are actually pretty libertarian-leaning. But... Yeah, well, especially a, in Arizona, because thing. like I said, it's just so easy to get on the ballot as a green in Arizona. It's just really, really yeah. easy. The, the, the threshold for signatures is incredibly low, incredibly low. So I guess that's my first question. You've already hit on it. You know, why does America need a third party? We already have chocolate and vanilla. Why do we need a third flavor? Well, um, <laughs> I, I think I, I kind of um, I, I have my own doubts about this kind of thing, you know, at, at various times. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think about a lot about the role of uh, of parties. Like, what are they what are they for? Like, you know, third parties, are they to protest or are they to win? Like, what's the the point of it? I had a political science teacher in, in high school, actually, who kind of uh, helped cement some of my views about this kind of a pretty matter of fact discussion about the role that parties play. The short of it is third parties are influential all over the world. They, they, do, they do affect change, maybe not in the way that they say that they're going to, but they, they always make a difference. Sometimes it's just by affecting people on the outside. Sometimes it's by actually winning. But I, I think what's happening right now in the U.S. is we're entering a moment where the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, um, their constituencies are shrinking because of polarization. So you have this sort of rhetoric and, you know, policy decisions that are kind of increasing in both parties that are, are increasingly not representing the average American. And just because you're a major party now doesn't mean uh, you're going to be forever looking at you, Whig Party. <laughs> it's... Uh, so I think to just because, you know, we have this system that's dominated by the two parties right now doesn't mean that it can't change. And I think that actually 
it, it's getting to the point where the time is right for change because we need a party that will represent some kind of uh, middle ground or just, you know, even ideas that a lot of people on some level agree with. You know, even like Ronald Reagan, big Republican guy, probably the most famous Republican uh, besides like Abraham Lincoln, I guess. He, you know, said that uh, libertarianism was at the heart and soul of conservatism. A lot of Democrats describe themselves as civil libertarians. There's a lot of like libertarian views that bleed into like both parties. It's just when it comes to actually, you know, when it comes down to it, neither of them are actually like libertarian. But I think that they're, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that some parts of the process are, are, have really gotten to the point where they're broken and you won't be able to change anything without getting somebody from the inside in because the, um, the, the current political parties are really entrenched in their ways of doing things. They need to save face. There's lots of other reasons they're not going to change. So somebody either needs to make them change or somebody needs to take their place. I think at this point in history. Well, also, I would say that it's also about choices, right? I mean, because, you know, there's there's an old saying that they, you know, they say that, uh, hey, you know, two choices is one more than they had in uh, the Soviet Union. Because they had elections in the Soviet Union, there was just only one person on the ballot. So uh, a lot of places do that. And I think that it's all about having additional choices, don't you think, Jacob? Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, they, they had, uh, they had, choices in the Soviet Union, you know, like a lot of people were, you know, wanted to point out, you know, you could go uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, you could stand in front of the White House and scream down with Reagan, right? And uh, the Soviet Union is much like that. You could stand in front of the Kremlin and scream down with Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. That joke's actually from from a a Soviet uh, radio show, I believe, like from that area. But yeah, you know, actually in China, in China, there's lots of political parties besides the Communist Party. But the Constitution basically says that the other parties kind of like exist at the pleasure of the Communist Party. <laughs> so the, the only the only role of a party in that kind of system is to do things for the other parties. And I think we're actually sort of in a danger of getting this like mentality here in the US where people have this weird, like reflexive reaction to trying to run to another party like like you're messing with my thing. How dare you mess with my thing? Don't you know we have a system? And yeah, um, you know George Washington, in his farewell address, you know, first president of the United States, warned about the dangers of political parties and factions, and you know with what could happen if they, you know, became too influential. I think that we're seeing the results that he was warning us about today. So to win an election, you have to put together a coalition. You have to kind of look around and not just say, okay, people who think exactly the way I do, they're the people who are going to vote for me because there's going to be a lot of people who don't think exactly like any of the candidates. In fact, that's where we are. So what is Justin Amash's winning coalition look like? Is there one? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Justin Amash, cont- oh, there it is, Amash 2020. Justin Amash contends that, you know, like, like I'm saying, essentially there's uh, a lot of people who are underrepresented. Um, there's a lot of people who have issues with the system and he wants to reach all those people. He wants to build that coalition. This will necessarily involve, you know, bringing people on who aren't really libertarian. Like, I think a lot of people are missing this. Like the goal is not a mass conversion that rarely works. Like you, like you're saying, you know, you need to build coalitions. I think that two major things that I think I, I always thought people should focus on and he is focusing on, I think, which is great. There's two things that government does a lot that hurt a lot of people and could be, you know, reined into a degree. One of them is cronyism. Government takes your resources and they give it to the politically influential. 
So big businesses, unions, you know, institutions, stuff like that. You saw this in the recent bailout that they did. You know, everybody got these stimulus checks and they made this big deal about it. But most of the money did not go to individuals. Most of the money went to connected businesses and organizations. And we saw a lot of cases where a lot of these uh, businesses were wasting the money right after they got it or even before they got it. You know, so the, the airlines were running, you know, empty flights, burning the cash to make the bailout cash. You know, like it, it's right. it's just absolutely ludicrous. And that's what our system is based on. It's a system of of legal plunder. So I think a lot of people are fed up with that plunder. Um, another thing that people are really affected by right now is red tape. You can see actually recently with the whole situation with the, the COVID-19 crisis, I really think um, we could have done a lot better handling this if it weren't for all this red tape. Early on, the uh, the CDC effectively stopped people from uh, entering the market with with private tests. And they were like, oh, it's okay, we got it, You know, it's gonna be good. And then they screwed it up. And then we lost all this valuable time that people could have been you know, perfecting this process if we decentralized it a little bit more. And I think that's another thing that he's going to, that he's highlighting that's actually hurting a lot of people is this centralization of decision-making where they're saying like, hey, we need to handle this. We're gonna handle the whole thing. And then just the, the, you know, the nature of these of these bureaucracies is that they mostly exist to protect themselves. I mean, do do, do you watch a lot of Netflix? Yeah, I do. Oh, I do. Yeah. Okay. So recently on Netflix, they've had this kick documentaries and shows about government incompetency. Basically, that's my interpretation of it. Maybe that's the the libertarian. You know, they they might have said it's something else. But you look at these cases with Gabriel Hernandez in Los Angeles. You know, the kid who was murdered by his you know parents, and they the 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 stuff about the opioid the opioid crisis and the stuff about Waco and all this like these are cases where the where the government really uh, screwed up and they they highlighted another big one I guess uh, what was it? that was on Netflix it was the how to fix a drug scandal definitely watch that if you haven't watched that but it was it was a, a big you know overarching narrative where you saw over time that this bureaucracy in in the state of Massachusetts was functioning exactly how it was meant to. It was basically trying to protect itself at all costs. You had uh, overwhelming evidence that there was something broken in their system. People were there was there was two simultaneous cases of uh, unreliable test results at the state drug labs, and the uh, attorney general of the state actively, you know, prevented that investigation going anywhere for ages. And it, it took the very hard thankless at the time work of some defense attorneys and some other people like journalists and stuff like that to kind of, you know, force the government to, you know, behave the way it it should. But I think this is what happens naturally when any organization gets this large. Um, So we need we need checks on that kind of power, um, because we can't have all the decision making, you know, centralized uh, in these people's hands. Now, you mentioned that we we have to reach out to a broad coalition, which I I agree with. Now, the, the other side of that argument. You have some people like Jacob Hornberger, Michael Malice, Dave Smith, Tom Woods, who have been saying, you know, conservatism is just progressivism driving the speed limit. If you don't swing for the fences, if you don't show, if you don't have a clear choice, why should people vote for you? Why shouldn't people just vote for one of the two major parties? Uh, what, what do you think of, of that approach? You know, I, I think that uh, different people are motivated by different things. I, I think that you have to acknowledge the fact that um, anybody who, you know, joins your cause isn't necessarily going to be, you know, in it for the same reasons that you are. You look at all the the influential social movements in American history, there were people involved with very different motivations. You know, a lot of people like to talk about the Baptists and the bootleggers. <laughs> Both of these groups 
you know, wanted prohibition for their various differing reasons. But the same thing is kind of true, I think, of, of political movements. You have some people who are I- ideologues, maybe they have like this idea, this is the ideal version of government, this is the ideal version of society or whatever. And they're going to try to convert people and evangelize and bring people their cause. But I think that if you want to actually move the needle in your direction, you're going to have to get people involved who don't necessarily, you know, agree with what you agree. On. And it's not even that you really have to compromise on your principles, you just have to think about, okay, what am I trying to do? What goal am I trying to achieve? And then focus on the things that are going to bring you, you know, do something that, you know, affects change in a positive direction, in a way that you can get other people on board. You know, Ron Paul had in the Fed, Trump had the wall, Bernie had Medicare for all. It seems like if you're going to run as, as sort of an outsider candidate, you need that signature issue that brings people in and realize, makes them realize that you do offer something tangible. Uh, you know, maybe there was an issue for you that, that, that was the light bulb moment for you with Justin Amash. Uh, what, what do you think that is for Justin? Or do you think he has yet to, to put that out there? Well, I, I got to be honest with you. Um, I think the the reason that this might not be the best reason for everybody, but the reason I, you know, started supporting Justin Amash, you know, very early on, I, I followed him is because I, I looked at him and I was like, this is somebody who earnestly wants to do his job correctly. He understands like what the Constitution is there for. He understands uh, he has this foundational understanding of um, I, I guess both ideology and just kind of like, you know, economic truths that helped kind of like form um, this ideology and it sort of drives like everything else he does. So it, in his case, I think it's it it's individual rights and, and the rule of law. So this idea that the purpose there, there's a purpose to the law, it's the, you know, organization of the collective right to self-defense. It's there for everybody's benefit. But when you start doing certain things, it, it it's, you know, dangerous to the very goals that you're you're trying to achieve. But yeah, honestly, I mean, just advocating for limiting government and restraint in government consistently, explaining everything he was doing and why he thought it was the right thing to do, taking his oath of office seriously. He's not there to do what lobbyists want him to do. He's there to do his job correctly. And I thought about this when I was thinking about, you know, when when they were saying he was considering running for president, I thought this is the first person if I get to vote for him for president, he will be the first person I've ever voted for for president that I actually liked. And that's just, that's amazing. But like, I can look at this person like, I know that we elect him. He's going to do his best to actually do his job. And it's, uh, it, you should be able to say that for anybody running for president. But like, I, I don't think that that's the case. So that that's kind of what made me, you know, support. I think he understands the proper role of government. And that's, that, that's his main issue. Now you need to package it in different ways, obviously, because that just, mm-hmm. it sounds a little like, you know, floaty when you, you say it that way. But, you know, he says we need a government that secures our rights, supports equality uh, before the law, and cronyism. Like, these are some bullet points that I think that we can get on board with. Yeah, it's, it's not very concrete. It, to a large degree, it's I'm not a boomer who has a history of, should I say it, sexual allegations against me. Uh, for a lot of people, that's a big thing. Uh, people don't trust the president. People don't trust Biden, who has a long history of, of of lying about his biography and plagiarizing speeches, all kinds of things. So I, I think it's kind of an obvious question. Do do you think is do you think that his age helps him just because he's uh, a Gen X type? Do you think that adds anything? I don't really know. I think that should help. He yeah, he's he's brilliant. He just turned forty, I think. So he. 
he's really, you know, pretty young to be running for president. I, I think it's nice to have somebody who can kind of like represent millennials and Gen Xers in this thing where you have two people who are really much older with maybe all the, you know, I guess kind of like culture and, you know, ideas that go along with that. Um, I don't want to be ageist. Like, I don't think like, you know, if you're younger, you're necessarily like better or anything like that. That's not mm -hmm. really... And a lot of people spend too much time on that. I don't think that's really the point. Yeah, I think it could work in his benefit that he's older. And his question about messaging, like, I, I don't want to act like I can speak, you know, for right. him or his campaign or anything. They probably have a way more articulate way of putting what his message is that uh, I do. And uh, right now, I'd like to remind everybody uh, what we have is an exploratory committee. Uh, there's technically no campaign yet. So he did announce he was interested in running for president. He has not secured a nomination yet. Um, he's not, you know, going to be on any ballots yet. If everything just, you know, stayed exactly like, you know, how it is, he would be on no ballots. So um, I anticipate more to come. I, I think a lot of you are are going to be, you know, pleased with what you see. Maybe some people won't be pleased with what they see. Obama didn't always have, you know, change we can believe in or yes, we can or whatever like that happened at mm -hmm. at some point or another. So I, I think you'll get some kind of thing that you can um, that that you can rally around. It might be a little bit different than what you've seen with other candidates, though, because unlike other people, I, I think that he doesn't just focus on platitudes. I think that that's one of the main like distinguishing differences. There, there isn't, <laughs> there isn't any one like platitude that can like, you know, sum up what you should do as president. Well, I think one thing that's interesting about Amash, at least right now in this preliminary stage of the campaign, like we were talking about that uh, that tweet earlier off the air. I wish we were, we were talking about where he says he's going to do things like end asset forfeiture, uh, end the war on drugs. He's going to end this, you know, end uh, foreign wars, you know, end this. I'm going to get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of that. But at some point, what Amash needs to do is also say, well, this is what I'm going to add. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I'm going to this is what I'm going to bring new to the table. And, and I haven't seen that yet. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen one thing, and I think maybe people aren't focusing on this enough. So I think I think I would like to point it out because I think it's very good. It's just I don't. It might be not meaty enough for like some of the the pundits or something, but I think it's very important. So we should probably try to get people to get it. And it's that uh, Congress is broken. So basically, what he's saying is the way the process works right now is the president and the leadership of both parties get together, and then they come up with some deal about like what everybody's doing and then they tell everybody how to vote. And that's the entire thing right now. There is no deliberative body. Um, so I guess if you were to sum it up in a short thing that you could tell people it's you are not being represented. <laughs> You're electing representatives to Congress and they're not representing you because the system doesn't right. allow them to. Everything's about committee assignments and like other stuff like that. By the way, Went to a talk with uh, Barry Goldwater Jr., who was a, a, a congressman. He was explaining how committee assignments work. I didn't really know anything about committee assignments. So what a lot of people might think is that, you know, they look at you and you're like, oh, Dr. Ron Paul, you're a medical doctor. Oh, that's good. We'll put you on, you know, a healthcare committee or something like that. Nope, not how that works. Apparently, the way the committee assignments work is they basically do it based on seniority, the ones that are considered the best committees to be on are given to the people who are have been there the longest and the most loyal, et cetera, et cetera. And then the way they get their expertise is that they invite experts to come and educate them. So experts, you know, we're talking about right. lobbyists, basically. So people are making their you know decisions about what the laws are going to be for the U.S. based on what lobbyists are telling them to do. Yeah, I've heard him talk about that. And he's absolutely right. In fact, um, he was quoted 
uh, in the book American Carnage at length, uh, sort of talking behind the scenes to Tim Alberta about how, uh, I guess it was John Boehner was the uh, predecessor to Paul Ryan. Amash had been very much against Boehner. Like his whole thing is, we're going to get Boehner out. We're going to put one of our people in. And they put Paul Ryan in, who had been sort of a Tea Party guy. And he was even more top down and didn't allow them to do anything. No amendments coming from the floor. Everything had to go through the Speaker of the House. And the only reason, as far as I can tell, why you have the two parties working together right now is because the Democrats have the House and the Republicans have the Senate. Otherwise, it would just be the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House working together, both from the same party, coordinating. But I think he's absolutely right about that. But it, it is a bit of a wonky issue. But the fact, I think it is, I think you're right. It's a bedrock issue. This is about, are we being represented, even a, in a literal sense? Are our representatives even trying to represent us? Um, so we're, we're running a little uh, short on time here, but, you know, kind of where do you see this going? Can he can he dig into the Biden coalition or the Trump coalition or the, can he get the Bernie bros on his side? Do you see any of that happening? Is he going to win any states? Where, where is this going? I, I think it can happen. I, I think what it what needs to happen is um, it, it needs to dawn on people that something is broken and needs to change. And it, I know people have a short political memory, but just think about like what the Republicans have been doing, what the Democrats have been doing, what they've been promising you. Have they ever delivered on their promises? <laughs> I mean, you have uh, the Republicans always run on like limited government. You know, the Democrats always run on like social justice or something like it, it just never, never actually pans out the way that they say it's going to. Um, and sometimes they just shift every 10 years on like what their positions are. It's like it's all just some big kind of game. Um, so I think if you can hammer home the point that our republic representative democracy, you know, it isn't working. And that we could make a change. This is something concrete. Justin Amash said that he would do. He said, um, I'm not going to I'm not going to participate in this process. If you elect me to be president, I'm not going to collaborate with the leaders of, you know, the the two houses and the and the parties to make these decisions. I'm going to force them to bring it to Congress and deliberate because that's what Congress is supposed to do. Your representatives are supposed to represent, you know, represent you in this body, you know, debate write laws that way. That's how it's supposed to work. So if people, I, I don't know, if people want to fix, uh, you know, the democratic Republican system of government, which people are saying all the time, right? Like democracy is broken. How many times have you heard that? This is your way to fix democracy. Every four years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think that this is your best shot at fixing democracy. So that's kind of, um, if, if that point, you know, can get through to people, then I, then I think that he'll have more success than people are, uh, than people are thinking. Also, I'd like to point out that he constantly surprises people. I remember when he was running against this guy, I think his name was Brian Ellis uh, in his uh, primary in Michigan. A lot of his colleagues, you know, in the house dumped him. A lot of his donors dumped him. A lot of people went to this guy. The guy was rich. You know, he was funding his own campaign. He ran a lot of like nasty stuff calling Justin Amash, like a friend of Al Qaeda and all this other kind of stuff. Beat the guy by more than 10 points, I think, which wasn't something a lot of people were anticipating. They were like, all right, we're going to stab him in the back and then he's going to go away. But that didn't happen. He's been remarkably, for the amount of times people have said, you know, you're going to go, you're going to go any day now. It, he's been around since 2010. So. Yeah, and, and that attack, calling him a friend of Al-Qaeda is especially offensive if you realize that Justin Amash is an Arab Christian. Right, yeah. His, his parents are uh, from the Middle East. He says, uh, you know, 
dad was a refugee, mom's an immigrant they're from Syria and Palestine. They they came to uh, they came to America for you know a better life. He's a he's a second generation American, and they were no way involved in like you said you know Arab Arab Christian like they persecuted you know by groups like Al Qaeda and other you know militant groups uh, in that area. So the idea that you could make that association and kind of do that dog whistle, you're like look at this Arab guy he's doing like that's just that's just awful. But I'm going on with yeah. a tangent. No, no, I, I think it's a, I think it's an excellent point, and, I, and I'm 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 glad you you made it. A lot of people have been saying that they think he's a Muslim, and it's a it's a a, a very strange thing. So I, I I guess well you know thank you for for coming on, and the, you know we've had a lot of good questions and a, and a good discussion. I think uh, one final question uh, is taxation theft. <laughs> taxation is theft <laughs> there we go all right well thank you for being on the show jacob we really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me all right you have thanks a good jacob appreciate it all right eric how are you doing good 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 I'm tired well, uh, but uh, otherwise okay i'm fine I, I like to talk about cnada but did you have a news story you want to talk about before that uh actually i have a daily distraction so there we go. I would like to, would like to get into that. Okay. <laughs> and uh, once again, uh, CNN has uh, come through for me. And I, I appreciate the, the good work that CNN does for me as far as uh, these uh, silly news articles. So this is straight from uh, the main page of CNN, and this was actually their top story. Uh, so this is from uh, today. It was updated at, at 3.03 p.m. Eastern Time. And it says, one day after reopening, an ice cream shop was forced to temporarily close because customers didn't follow social distancing rules. And so the article here goes on to say, nearly all states partially reopened last week, and businesses across the country are preparing to welcome customers back. But because of the coronavirus pandemic, things are far from normal. An ice cream shop in Massachusetts had to close its doors on Saturday just one day after reopening because customers refused to follow social distancing rules and even harassed employees. Things got so bad at the Polar Cape ice cream parlor in Mashpee that an employee quit the same day. So this article goes on to uh, state the plight of this, uh, of this business and that they uh, apparently uh, were trying to take reservations for ice cream and uh, people weren't complying with it, and they decided to come anyway. They started to get into arguments with the, uh, the employees, according to the owner. And uh, end of the story, yeah, they, they opened back up within a couple of days. So it was basically a big nothing. Uh, this clearly is meant to show you know, the, the plight of these poor businesses that are being mm-hmm. forced to open under these terrible uh, rules that allow for freedom and allow people to have their businesses back. Seriously, this this is truly a distraction. Oh, um, I didn't I take that away from it. this article at all. I, I took the opposite, that they were allowed to reopen and that it was a problem. It's just, it's really difficult to do. They were forced to temporarily close. Now, what I don't understand is why they were punishing the business owner. Why didn't he just kick the, if he had disruptive or patrons I thought were being disruptive, why didn't he just kick them out and that's the end of it? Well, that's the point. Well, why didn't he? Instead, that this this article is basically about this uh, this sort of little little drama tale about all the all the terrible things that happened when they opened and customers not complying because 
you know, it's all about compliance. That's that's the whole point. Uh, right now, that's the spin is if, if you don't comply, uh, you're bad. So the, the, they're trying to say that the customers weren't compliant with their regulations of this particular business uh, when it seems to me the whole thing was just a, an overhyped distraction. Again, that's why I brought it up as a, as a, as a daily distraction. I, I understand that there, there are places that are dealing with unruly customers. You're always going to have to deal with unruly customers. That, that's not a problem that happened overnight or happened because of the coronavirus. Uh, there's always been unruly customers at every business. There always will be. That's, that's not something that's going to change anytime ever. But I think that the, the spin on this uh, is very clearly to show this idea of, oh, well, are we opening up too soon? These people, you know, these customers, I mean, you know, how dare they be, be doing these things? How dare they be going out? How dare they want their ice cream? You know, that kind of thing, which, I, again, I just think it's, it's agenda driven. Right. To me, there's clearly an agenda behind this. And the fact that this was the main article on the CNN page, that to me just speaks volumes. This is not like something that was buried under some tab somewhere about, uh, you know, buzz or local news or, or anything like that. This is, was on the CNN main page. It was the lead story. It was the top story on the page. And it's it, it, very clear to me that, that there's an agenda behind this story. There's a message that they're trying to trying to take because remember, most people, all they're going to read is the headline. They don't even read, bother to read the article. And if you read the article, this place opened back up within a couple of days. You know, they they basically they 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 got upset or they had the issue or whatever, and they were back up and running within a couple of days after this apparent issue that they had with the with the customers. And again, you know, it's also kind of this thing is like. Well, you know, I've always grown up under the idea that the customer is always right, but apparently that's not what everybody agrees on, right? So it is what it is. Well, and, they're not uh, if they're not following store rules. You're the business owner. You have to set the rules. And I, I took exactly the opposite, that uh, a conclusion that CNN, you're saying CNN is trying to imply here, because if you've been closed now since March, and I don't know if this is a 24-hour, 12-month-a-year ice cream business. There are some that are only open in the summer months, so maybe they wouldn't have been open earlier anyway. But to be closed for two months and to then lose four more days, to me, sounds like a really big deal. Like that could really hurt your business. And I, as a business owner, would not be very happy about that. And I, I wouldn't say it's a distraction if if it were my business. I'd be very, very upset. I'd be upset if it was my business as well. But the the, the point is here is that he's blaming the customers. Well, I want right. customers if I have a business. I want people to come in and buy my ice cream. This is look at the headline. The headline says, one day after reopening, ice cream shop was forced to temporarily close because customers didn't follow social distancing rules. It doesn't say right. because this business owner didn't have a uh, proper security or this business owner wasn't prepared. No, it's the customer's fault. You know what I mean? And that that's what I'm I'm taking exception with is is the fact that the, sure. the spin on this story. I understand what you're saying in terms of if you're a business owner and you have to close because of a situation that's terrible for you, right? But the fact of the matter is they've been closed because of a terrible situation, and that's because their governor forced them to close. That's the bigger issue. That's the actual real problem. Not that some customers came in and were causing a disruption at this one business. You see what I'm saying? 
I, I absolutely see it. And, and that really ties into the next story that I wanted to speak about, which I don't know if I sent you the link, but it's from Arizona, the Arizona Republic. And we've been talking about it. We've tweeted about it. It's not just the Arizona Republic talking about it. It's ABC 15. It's everybody in Arizona is talking about how the legislature has adjourned, how they've declared uh, a DA means without days. It means it's the end of the session. And this is this is terrible because here... We're at this critical juncture in our history where the governors and the mayors, you've talked about the L.A. model, where the mayors are declaring emergencies so that way they can act as the entire city council by themselves without any checks or balances. The, the, the city councils and our legislatures are letting the, our governors and our mayors roll all over us and make all of the rules. And then we're going to court. And if the court says that it's constitutional, well, that's OK. I had kind of a cryptic tweet over the over the weekend. You know, just because something is constitutional doesn't mean it's not a dumb idea. It may be perfectly allowable to have these bad policies in place, but it doesn't make it a good idea. And the legislature is where we're supposed to be making policy. And what is the Arizona legislature doing? What is Karen Fan, the Senate leader in Arizona, doing? Going on vacation at the one time when we actually need our politicians. Normally, they're useless. Normally, it doesn't matter if they're only in session for a month or two a year because they can get all their business done. But right now, we have an ongoing crisis. And her response is, we will declare a special session if we need to. But but guess who gets to call a special session? Do you know? I do not. It's the governor. So if they want to hold the governor accountable, they need the governor's permission. It is absolutely topsy-turvy. So the, the Arizona Republic's take on this, as you can imagine, is just the coldest of takes. They, they their, their first big point is, well, the economy is doing terrible. That means that Arizona doesn't, meaning the Arizona government, doesn't have a lot of money. And so all these bills are going to be dead on arrival because they all cost money. It didn't even occur to them in their coverage that maybe they should be cutting spending because... They don't have the money. It, it didn't even occur to them that they would that they would be passing bills in order to be more cost conscious. Just the opposite. the The next argument was, well, you can't do committee work because you can't get into the committee rooms. Well, <laughs> what are we doing right now? We're we're talking over uh, the internet. We're on Facebook and YouTube, and you can listen to us on Anchor.fm if you know get any podcast service you want to listen to us. There are ways to do this, and maybe we should have been doing this all along, telecommuting, get letting our legislators telecommute. So that's a, that's a non-starter. That doesn't make any sense, but like no imagination whatsoever. And she and, and goes on, this woman, Joanne, I know some lawmakers want to punish the governor for issuing his stay-at-home order. They fear that if they end the legislative session, they won't be able to smack him down, particularly if he issues another. He shouldn't be allowed to issue emergency orders while the legislature is in session. He shouldn't be allowed. You know, they've had time to respond. They've had time to think about it and think about what they want the policy to be. Why do we assume that the governor should be unilaterally making this policy? And why is it a partisan thing? Why is it just Republicans? Why are both parties furious that the governor is doing their job and they're not allowed to? So I, I find it, you know, absolutely in, infuriating. And, and and just to, 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 to cap this off, because we're 
lawmakers can queue up a list of bills that didn't pass this session, but are ready to go first thing in 2021, and committee chairs would be asked to give them priority in January. So we're going to wait for January for the legislature, which is a part-time legislature, to do their jobs. What do you what do you think about that, Eric? It's, it's just ridiculous. You know, we, we've we've talked about that, and it also kind of relates to the main topic that we had at the top of top of the hour here, with uh, you know what, what Amash is saying about you know legislatures have a job to do and they're not doing it, and we've seen this in the federal government for so long. Now we're really seeing it in our state legislatures as well, and it, it, it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy the way that legislatures are just totally acquiescing to the executive branch in, in every single state. And this is this is a bipartisan issue where basically they are all folding and basically saying, we're just going right. to do whatever the governor says. Um, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, especially after this amount of time. There's no excuse for the legislature not acting and doing something. Right. The legislature could enact a law and they could actually put a, a date on it. They could say, OK, yeah. we're going to extend uh, this, you know, the, the governor's order until this time or we're going to end it. The legislature has that ability. No, no executive has the ability to make these executive orders or, or emergency declarations, uh, you know, unending. They, they can't do that. They don't have that kind of authority, especially once the legislature decides, well, we're going to do that, go do it this way or do it that way. Because, you know, I've talked about this before. Executive orders have the effect of, of law. They, they are laws de facto. They may not be laws de jour because right. they are not technically laws, but, but they have the force of law, especially right. the way that these, these executive orders are written uh, because they, they always have an enforcement mechanism. Right. right? Because the, 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 the most governors do have a, an apparatus to declare emergencies and do things like force evacuations and things like that. That's what those laws are for, right? That's exactly what those laws are for. Right. So and the, the way there, that there is governor, a criminal penalty to that. So Yeah. And the way that Governor Ducey's been able to speak out of both sides of his mouth on this issue is he's saying, well, I'm not imposing the penalty or I'm not enforcing this. It's just a suggestion, which isn't true. We've gone through the language. But in many cases, it's your county health inspector who is going to be enforcing it and then calling the sheriff to come arrest you. So the sheriff has clean hands. Hey, we're not cracking down on, on businesses. We're just responding to the health inspector and the governor. Well, I'm not doing anything, and, yeah, that's but exactly. it's all nonsense. Well, like I said, it's, it's not as if he's directly ordering the state police necessarily to do these things. He's he's putting these orders out, and then he's leaving it on to individual sheriffs, you know, police chiefs, mayors, to decide how to enforce these things. Uh, which just creates a big mess. Right. And, you know, I, I will give uh, Arizona Republicans some credit here. We've seen a lot of pushback against Governor Ducey's order, uh, which is the right thing to do, because you don't have a republic if you have one man acting unilaterally. We can call it a dictatorship or a tyranny or an empire, whatever you want to call it. But this is what happened with Rome. And I, I don't want to be too dramatic here because we always people always compare the United States to Rome. But one of the things that happened with the Roman Empire was that the Senate became less and less important because they still met and they still voted, but they were basically just a debating society. They just advised the emperor 
and really couldn't bind him anymore. And, and that's where we are with, with Congress, and that's where we are with our state legislatures in, in many cases. That's a good analogy, unfortunately. It really is, because the, 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 you know, the, the Roman Republic, you know, it was a republic. That's how they started out. Of course, it became an empire. And uh, quite frankly, a lot of people think we're on the same road. So. Yeah, in many ways, we're already, already there. I, I think we could talk about this for a long time. We, we got a lot of traction on, on Twitter. I think a lot of people are talking about this issue. But uh, what, was your, what was your final segment for the night? Well, I thought this is interesting. This is actually another CNN article. So I'll be fair. This is a good article, in my opinion. Some uh, real news, if you will. And uh, this was updated uh, today. And uh, this is about the issue in South Dakota between the state and the tribes, which is something we haven't talked about. And this is an issue... This is an interesting issue to discuss. So it's, it's an South interesting Dakota, wrinkle because this is going against the grain of everything else that's happening in the country. So th- this is South Dakota, which South Dakota, for those that don't know, has been one of the states that's resisted any kind of uh, tyrannical declarations. And the, 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 the headline here reads, South Dakota's governor threatened to take two tribes to court over coronavirus checkpoints. Here's what's to know. So it says a group of 17 South Dakota legislatures urged the state's governor to try to reach a compromise with two tribes that have added checkpoints to help control the spread of coronavirus. Now, the lawmakers said in a letter dated Saturday that they did not wish to be a to be party of the lawsuit that will ultimately cost the people of South Dakota more money. We wish to work with all parties involved for a reasonable, legal and appropriate solution that addresses the concerns of all sovereigns involved. Instead, the lawmakers asked the governor to meet with members of both tribes to negotiate a resolution that reflects our combined goal of keeping all people healthy and safe. So what we have here is two tribes that have started to put checkpoints in the state of, within the borders of the state of South Dakota, but with but on tribal land. So we have the Oglala Sioux and the Cheyenne River Sioux tribes which have set up checkpoints to regulate who comes in and goes through their reservations. Both tribes have issued strict stay-at-home orders, while the governor has not. Uh, So they also have curfews on these uh, reservations. The checkpoints established to help control the spread of the coronavirus are established to help the, the spread of the coronavirus are the reservation's best tool to protect themselves against the illness. That's according to the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe Chairman, Harold Frazier. He said reservations aren't equipped to deal with the coronavirus outbreak. And it does specify in here about what limited resources uh, they have on the reservations in terms of very limited health care, that kind of thing. So they they have a, a, a severe capacity issue. But what they've done is they've issued these very strict checkpoints, complete with travel papers, you, for instance, for those coming from a quote-unquote hotspot, they can only go to the reservation for essential activities and can only do so after obtaining a travel permit available on the tribe's website. So it's a very interesting situation because what you have here is that these, these tribes have decided to establish actual checkpoints uh, within the reservation to stop people from either coming or leaving the reservation that matter. And they're issuing their own travel papers and things like that. In particular, the issue here is that some of the roads that they're using are interstates 
and freeways and things of that nature. In other words, they are actually roads that are maintained by the state. And that's one of the sticking points with this particular issue. It's, it's actually really interesting. So you, you kind of have this fight over jurisdiction. And there's even some old cases here cited all the way back from 1851 and 1868, where they talk about some of these different agreements. Because like, for instance, there was an agreement dating back to 1851 that pledged, it recognized the government's right to create roads and posts in parts of tribes' territories. But at the same time, it, it also established, there was another document that established that the, you know, the reservations are obviously sovereign. So they, they have a great deal of latitude when it comes to uh, enforcing who can be on these, on these roads, but they're not supposed to be doing these things without consultation with the state. So it's a really interesting situation. Here in Arizona, we, we actually do have freeways that go through tribal land. In fact, there's a major freeway very close to where I live uh, that goes directly through tribal land. And the state has a compact uh, so that they can enforce, you know, enforce traffic regulations and things like that on the freeway. Is that the 101 or the Beeline Highway? I'm specifically talking about the 101 because the 101, you know, kind of goes, it's, it's a a big stretch of it is on tribal land, but it's like a major thoroughfare for people when they're commuting here in the Phoenix metro area. There's a compact involved so that basically the state police and theoretically any state uh, certified police officer can enforce traffic laws and deal with crimes on, on that, that stretch of, of the 101. And obviously there's no, there's no, the tribe is not supposed to be closing that down for any reason. That's the point because, because of the compact that they have with the state. I don't know what I kind see. of arrangement that, that South Dakota has with these kinds of roads and, and these kinds of closures, but the governor apparently thinks that they're in violation of whatever agreements they have. And it's just, a, it's just a really weird situation because it, it kind of goes back to, you know, we've talked about things like the 10th amendment. We've talked about things like the 14th amendment. You know, there's there's reasons for why these tribes are doing what they're doing, but these are extremely draconian measures that they're doing. You know, issuing travel permits and things like that. That's uh, that to me is 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 really extreme. You know, really really extreme. And it and it gets into the to the issue of of at some point it seems like the Justice Department and the Department of the Interior have to intervene in this uh, because it's it, it's kind of gotten gone too far. Well, I don't know if I agree with you there. Because if we're talking about, say, agreements that they have with the state of South Dakota, fine. I think when we have international treaties, and I believe that the, the these tribes should be allowed to be autonomous, they should be treated in many respects like foreign nations, because they never agreed to become part of the United States. So if they want to govern themselves completely autonomously, or as autonomously as possible, given the current legal patchwork. Well, that we I, I want to cor- I want to correct you on that because th- these tribes have treaties, so they did agree to become part of the United States. They, but, these treaties make it. them still they, they they still are subject to uh, the, the the federal government, and that's that's what I was talking about. Okay, but for well, there's there's a couple things there. One is those were largely made under duress, under coercion. I, I don't think we're happy about the Trail of Tears or how we've treated Native peoples historically. You know, these were separate people. They were here before we got here. And we've created these reservations with the thinking that these are basically semi-autonomous areas. And, you know, if, if I, maybe we should be thinking about rolling this back. Now, w- whether these draconian measures as you put them are, are wise, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of giving them as much leeway 
as possible, uh, so long as they respect their agreements uh, freely made with the state of South Dakota. Just like any treaty that you make with a foreign nation is above the Constitution even in terms of, or, or at least on, uh, on par with the Constitution, in terms of force, because we can't make a treaty with somebody else and then later say, oh, we're not going to be able to abide by that because, well, there was this law passed by Congress last year that doesn't allow us to. So, well, there, well, there's two issues here from a practical standpoint, uh, you know, getting beyond the ideology. And one is the rights of the people on the reservation, that they have the same constitutional rights as anybody else. Just because you're Native American doesn't mean that you're not entitled to 14th Amendment uh, protection. So the idea that they have to get travel papers and things like that, to me, is a violation of their constitutional rights. Now, the other side of it is you, you have – I don't know how big these reservations are. I don't know how much of a, a territory they cover within South Dakota that it makes it to the point where it's difficult to travel within the state because of these checkpoints. And that is something that's also relevant, and also what's relevant is who pays for those roads. So I think it's interesting. I mean, it's something that I, I personally would like to be a little more educated on. But, but there's definitely some valid issues and valid concerns, as far as I'm concerned, about what they're doing here. And, and yes, if, if we're going to treat them as American citizens, then absolutely, they're entitled to 14th Amendment protections and all that entails the Bill of Rights, which was incorporated against the states and presumably against, I, I suppose, these tribal groups, if they are subject to the federal government, if they are subject to the Constitution, which, again, I'm a little shaky on, you know, it seems like they should be given as much latitude as possible, given the history between us and, and them. Yeah, so th this, is a, this is a little different because normally it's been the federal, well, that's not even true. That's not even true, is it? Because the federal government hasn't imposed anything on the states. The states have kind of imposed some, th some things on localities. Well, this is the here, reverse. In, yeah, in this the reverse. particular state, they, they haven't imposed anything. South Dakota has been extremely liberal when it comes to this entire situation. It's this it's these tribal authorities that have imposed these these checkpoints. Right. So it, it becomes an issue of, of, you know, what I really care about personally is the people. I care about individuals and things like right. that and their rights. Uh, I don't really care as much about the institution. I just want to use whatever institution I can to encourage people's individual freedoms and liberty. And that's why I'm concerned about this situation. And I think it's an interesting one because I think this, this tribe is violating people's rights. That's, I'll just put it out there as that. I think they're violating people's rights, their ability to travel, their ability to conduct their, their lives and their business. And I, I don't think it's right. I really don't. Right. And, and they're making decisions based on, what, on the situation on the ground. We know that one of the, the risk factors for coronavirus is obesity. We know that obesity is rampant on Native American in Native American communities. So uh, perhaps they, do you think that maybe they might have a reason to be more strict in enforcing these kinds of rules than say the state of South Dakota? Yeah, I, I mentioned that that's in the article is, is that they, they have uh, valid concerns as far as the ability of their reservation to cope with actually any medical crisis because it sounds like their medical facilities are very limited. But the other side of that is, is, well, where do they go to get treatment normally? Well, it's not on the reservation, obviously. If they don't have any facilities, well, people go somewhere else to get medical treatment. Hmm. I thought the Bureau of Indian Affairs had med some medical system set up for precisely that reason. But I could be wrong. There are. Uh, in fact, a, a lot of the uh, 
the, the same group that the, the Surgeon General is part of, the, uh, it escapes me at the moment. They're one of the uniformed services. Um, okay. They have, they have a lot of involvement with, uh, with tribal uh, health care and things like that. Because again, it's because it's a federal agency. So they right. have they have quite a bit of involvement with that. But in this particular uh, circumstance, the president or chairman of, of one of the tribes, he mentioned that, yeah, their their facilities are extremely limited on the reservation. They don't have like a fully functioning hospital. In fact, they don't have a one single ICU bed. But that doesn't mean that people on the reservation just die if that happens. They obviously right. go to a hospital that's mm-hmm. off the reservation. So it's yeah. not like they would be dealing with it anyway. It's kind of a circular argument is what I'm trying to say. Oh, because see. on the one hand, I understand that their that their ability to cope is limited, but they don't really cope with it anyway. If they have an extreme medical situation, they take these people somewhere else. They don't they don't they they don't have any they don't have a, a functional hospital there. So they they take them somewhere else. They don't they, so don't they have the best of both worlds. Or at least they have a, a backstop, maybe is a better way to put it. If their their system is overwhelmed, which it sounds like it is, they have a backstop in having facilities off the reservation that they can access. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, they have the same rights of any other American citizen, and they have the same. I'm sure they have jobs off the reservation, all those different kinds of things. You know, it's not like they normally are stuck on the reservation, no matter what's going on. But but my my point is is that again, they are entitled to the same rights under the Constitution as anybody else. Just because you live on a reservation doesn't mean that suddenly your rights go away. Yeah, I completely agree. We've had a, a lot of good topics tonight. Uh, my name is Pete Maines. I'm here with Eric Alexander. And until next week, you keep flying free. <laughs>